0: Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder and editor of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. In today's episode, we talk to Dave Hahn, an extremely accomplished mountaineer. Dave has summited Everest 15 times. That's more times than any non-Sherpa climber. He's summited North America's highest peak, Denali, 21 times. And Dave was a key member of the team that discovered the remains of legendary explorer George Mallory at 27,000 feet on Mount Everest's north face. Dave is also a veteran ski patroller at Tau Ski Valley, and those of us who know Dave know just how lucky we are not because of all his accomplishments, but simply because he's such a great guy. And our audio engineer, Justin Bob, joins Dave and me for this conversation. Justin has known Dave for quite a while, and he's a fellow ski patroller with Dave at Taos. So Justin and I sat down with Dave to talk about books, movies, penguins, which automatically makes this our best podcast ever, Dave's take on the recent Everest movie, his assessment of the current state of the Everest industry, why he's so humbled and awestruck by a number of the clients he's guided over the years, and why, for him, the only thing harder than an Everest expedition is not going to Everest. This is a conversation I urge you to listen to from beginning to end. Dave himself is an exemplary study in achievement, humility, doing what you love, and refusing to live life according to the expectations of others. The further we get into this conversation, the clearer that all becomes. This episode of the Blister Podcast is brought to you by New Belgium Brewing Company. And right now, Justin, Bob, and I are going back to the beginning and enjoying a classic, Fat Tire Amber Ale. I actually just had New Belgium's latest release, a tangerine IPA called Citradelic, before Justin got here, But now, he and I are on to Fat Tire, New Belgium's first beer, the beer born nearly 30 years ago on a bike ride in Belgium. If you haven't had a Fat Tire in a while, you should. And you can go to newbelgium.com to check out all the stats and specs on Fat Tire and every other New Belgium beer. Now let's get to our conversation with the one and only Dave Hahn. Let's start with this. Let's open... Actually, yeah, let's start with this. I want to hear Dave Hahn's
1: top three ideas. Oh, no. Top three ideas. (laughs) Build a wall.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Number one.
1: Top three ideas. So
0: now this J-Bob says you have... You have tons of ideas. He
1: was being ironic. Yeah.
0: I was setting him up. Well, we have, I have no idea. We have ideas. build a wall. <laughs> we have build a wall. So now we don't need to talk politics. We know where you stand politically.
1: I don't want to build a wall or build a wall around Donald Trump.
0: <laughs> okay, A big, huge wall. Yeah. yeah,
1: one that falls on him and all the people that vote for him. But, um. No, I, I I would have trouble with with that specifically. No, like, no. no, no if, we, if you ask me out of the blue right now, come up with three ideas. Yeah. It's like well, Oh uh, come on! One you know, is wow, a wall. I've been working all day, and uh, this yeah. is really good. Yeah. <laughs> ideas. Yeah.
0: Now some warm-up questions that may or may not make it into the podcast, but it's like vocal exercises, right? you got to warm up or like skiing. (laughs) Oh, he's warmed
1: up. I don't need to warm up. He's warmed up. I've been talking. Favorite movie, favorite
0: last best movie you saw?
1: Last best. I'm a sucker for The Godfather. Fascinated by The Godfather. Do you keep watching and re-watching? Yeah. Yeah, I'll watch The Godfather over and over. Just, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I love watching. (laughs) Why? Well, I watch Al Pacino, and I watch Robert Duvall, and I watch Marlon Brando. I watch Abe Vigoda, Fish, who just died. That's why they just had The Godfather on a couple of weeks ago, you know. Oh, yeah. He was Tessio. (laughs) So the I just
0: asked you the last best movie you saw? Oh and this came out in nineteen seventy two. So is this <laughs> to say have, this is there's been no good film. Oh in, no, that's like, not.
1: No, not at all. Not at all. But uh but god, they don't put anything good on my TV. Uh what did I go to see this winter? I went to the movies twice. I saw the Everest Flick and uh-huh. I saw what was the other one I saw? It made a huge impression on me. <laughs> <laughs> Everest and the
0: Godfather. Well, this I think leads us into a very no, I, good question.
1: I like, I like plenty of contemporary movies. But uh but I, I guess I guess if you're asking the I I don't know, I'm I, Immediately, my mind went to which ones are time-tested classics. Is what I guess I thought you were asking me, but it, but I can see you weren't. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. What's the, what's the, what? Are, what were the big movies out this year? Couldn't tell you.
0: We've been busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait a second. We get. Let's back up. I'm going to ask you about Everest, the movie, in a second. That seems like of the most obvious question to ask Dave Hahn of maybe of all time, but let's go to the, then I asked you about the last best movie you saw. Let's talk about, uh,
1: your favorite movies. Are we putting Godfather number one? No, no. I would have to think a little bit more to give you, to give you a a great answer. You more of a
0: watcher or a reader?
1: Um, (laughs) I think I've switched over the years. I used to, be much more of a reader and to be honest now there's so many distractions at home you know satellite dish for tv and and the internet and by the time i go to home and scotch and by, the, by the by the time i get to bed which is where i would normally do my reading yeah i fall asleep but on expeditions i still read and i still make a point of reading I mean, I'll tend to load up my iPod or iPad with a bunch of movies or a bunch of Breaking Bad or something like that. <laughs> and I'll figure, okay, if it really gets hard on this expedition, if I really need to escape, you know, I got it right there. But the last couple of bigger trips that I've been on, I never got to, I never watched the videos on my phone or my iPad because I would get back into reading. I'd bring a Kindle and uh man it, you know the days when you had to bring you know a stack of books on an expedition which was pretty tough when you're carrying everything these days when you can you can have it all on your Kindle ah it's a dream hmm. and so yeah I, on on trips I'll still read but uh but I'm embarrassed to say that that when I'm home now, no, I, I can't get anything read. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. At least you can read. I'm, I can't even read. So <laughs> This is <laughs> true. <laughs> We've proven this time and time again as we do poster podcasts.
0: <laughs> and, uh, yeah, edit them. I like to ask, <clears throat> Desert Island, or we could say, yeah, we'll go with Desert Island. Books, music, or movies? Pick one genre.
1: Well, I guess that's what I was just saying—that mm-hmm. uh, that, that expeditions for me are a desert island. Yep, and and I, like I say, I like to have that in the back pocket. If I yeah. need a total escape, then sure, movies—you know—in in the form of on on your iPod or or eight hundred hours of Breaking Bad or something like that. Yeah, you can totally escape with that. And that means you don't need interaction with the people around you. And, yeah, that's great, but I'm going to keep that in my back pocket, and I'm going to go with with books first. And these days, yeah, I take it for granted. It's so easy to have all the music you want all the time now. I'll bring it, but I won't necessarily tap into it. Yeah. Again, it'll be in reserve, and I'm, I'm probably going to take the opportunity to read first because the assumption is that on that desert island, there's going to be fewer distractions mm-hmm. than in normal life. If you're listening to music, maybe you can't hear the penguins, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the penguins. Let, let's talk about the penguins. I think we need to discuss the penguins. I don't I don't know the I don't know the backstory here involving well, the Well I've
1: been going to Antarctica as part of my work for twenty years and uh inevitably <laughs> there are some penguins. I mean what I what I went down there for initially was guiding high mountains in the interior of Antarctica. There are no penguins in the interior of Antarctica. Virtually sterile environment. It's cold, minus 25 to minus 35 at the tops of these mountains. It's snow and ice and rock. Um, No wildlife. But by virtue of doing those trips, I ended up also doing trips, uh, some trips that were specifically to see penguins, uh, from the interior flying out to the coast to see emperor penguins. That was a... Crazy trip! Almost died on that one. Week-long trip to see the emperor penguins, and we got like clobbered by a massive storm. And oh, anyway, I could go on for like an hour just on that. But I've written about it somewhere over the years. It's it's on the internet. Somewhere. When was this? The late 1990s. So that was 96 or 97 probably 96 first went to Antarctica in 95 and then I've just done, I've probably done, I don't know, 15 to 20 trips by ship Hmm. over the years to the Antarctic Peninsula or South Georgia, sub Antarctic islands. Um, and I'll go as a guest speaker and Zodiac driver and, uh, you know, sometimes it's taking people hiking. Uh, sometimes it's going skiing with people. Sometimes you get a an actual climbing goal. But some of those trips are just plain old tourism, and I'm okay with that, too. There's great tourism along the, the Antarctic Peninsula and these sub-Antarctic Islands. If you're into the exploration history of Antarctica... Which is pretty hard to go there and not get into the exploration history, get into Shackleton yeah. and Scott <clears throat> and Amundsen, and imagine. you know, and and so then seeing these places where these parts of these great stories took place—it's a huge part of it. The physical geography down there—the the mountains, mm-hmm. the glaciers, the the ocean itself, and those mm-hmm. latitudes—it's pretty wild just on that basis so the history the, the the mountains themselves but nobody goes for all that or even for the climbing or skiing and doesn't come away just blown away by the wildlife you know hundreds of thousands of king penguins on South Georgia or, or the hundreds of thousands of macaronis and, and uh, chin straps and gentoo penguins the delis that you see the whales I mean you know penguins are cuter and make for better toys and stuff but yeah i'm I'm absolutely blown away by killer whales and uh, humpback whales on those trips and you know sometimes you just shut off your zodiac out there when you found some whales and you just let them come over to you if they're interested and just play. And I just can't get enough of that. Uh, So, yeah, I've probably taken, I don't know, 10,000 pictures of penguins over the years. (laughs) 20,000 pictures of penguins. Yeah. And so somehow my ski patrol buddies think I have a thing for penguins. (laughs) (laughs) We actually have a penguin up top
0: labeled Dave Hahn. It has a name tag. (laughs) The penguin is named Dave Hahn? So when people come in looking for Dave Hahn, he's not around. We show him the penguin.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like it. So wait, (laughs) penguins... I, I don't you, actually have a penguin fetish. Yeah, but, it's but okay if you did, cool. though. It's okay if you did. I mean, as long as you're, you know, as, as long as it's uh, well, here, you're respectful. Now take it from my side. When I'm doing a <laughs> slideshow and I'm showing pictures of, you know, cool mountains, which naturally I tip the camera a little bit, make it look steep and gnarly and everything, and everybody's like, oh yeah, cool. Oh yeah. You know, and you make it look tough, and you show them some climbing, and you show them some sunsets and everything. That's great. But flash up uh, a picture of a baby penguin on there, and the place goes nuts. <gasps> You're winning. Ah. Yeah. Really oh. Good. You know. So, sure. Yeah. Get the reaction. I'm not <laughs> above.
0: <laughs> the easy crowd pleaser. We should back this up to talk about how you got yourself entirely invested in this expedition, mountaineering, guiding lifestyle. Um, So let's take it back to the very beginning. You were born
1: in... Okinawa, Japan. Except it wasn't Japan then. We owned it fair and square and didn't give it back to Japan for another 10 years after I was born. But I was only there my first six weeks of life my dad was in the army army reserve and uh six weeks after i was born we moved back to we moved to the bay area my dad grew up in san francisco my mom grew up in new mexico in albuquerque and uh so my first seven years were in the bay area and then we moved to upstate New York, which in 1969 was backwards. In 1969, everybody was moving from the east to the west. And I was aware as a seven-year-old that this is kind of strange mm-hmm. going back, going, going to the northeast. And so I grew up in the mid-Hudson Valley in Kingston, New York, edge of the Catskills. And my dad always had us hiking uh, while we were in California. That, that was my first memories. Some of my first memories are, are hiking in the, in the Sierras and crying a lot. And Yosemite was always pretty important to my family. My dad was a rock climber in the 1940s and 50s. And, and then in New Mexico as well. He was stationed at Fort Bliss, so he climbed in the Gila. He climbed Shiprock a couple times. Hmm. He was into it. And so when I was growing up, yeah, we we hiked, and I cried like crazy. I didn't want to be doing it, and, you know, I wanted to be playing with my friends. And, no, we were out hiking. It was kind of weird, (laughs) but I kind of liked it. And there were pictures of climbers on, our, on the walls when I was a kid, and there were climbing books in the house. And so I was aware of climbing, but I didn't do any technical climbing when I was growing up. And my dad wasn't climbing by then, but he was into hiking. And eventually got into, like, ticking off the all the peaks in the Catskills, over 3,500 feet and the peaks in the Adirondacks over 4,000 feet and then he got into doing them in winter which was really weird back then yeah he dragged me along what year are we talking now we're talking in the second half of the 1970s yeah you know I can I was talking to some guy the other day I was riding a chairlift with a guy that said he was a ski patroller at the At the Lake Placid Olympics in 1980. And he was telling me about that a little bit. And I had to remember that, wow, during those Olympics, my dad had us camped at like minus 30, minus 40 (laughs) Fahrenheit out in Adirondacks. You know, not far from the Olympics, but up in the high peaks where there weren't any people or bugs or mud. And, (laughs) And... and I didn't tell this guy that I was riding on the lift with, but I was thinking, "Wow, that was some of the most rugged winter, cold, nasty conditions until until I ended up in the highest Himalaya and Antarctica. it was like, wow up 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 in the Adirondacks in midwinter was pretty nasty, but um, yeah, there was a little bit that Of that that I must have liked, I got away from it a little bit. I ended up going to school in Buffalo, New York. Wasn't particularly happy there. Um, I had spent some summers as a kid in New Mexico. We'd traveled a lot to New Mexico. Uh, It was during my last couple years in college that I realized how much I loved New Mexico. By the time I got out of school I had no idea anymore what I wanted to do for a living. I'd started out an aerospace engineering major. Hmm. I finished a history major in well, so I last attended in December eighty three. I was class of eighty four. But uh yeah, what are you supposed to do with a history degree? Yeah. I moved to New Mexico immediately. <laughs> Where? I moved to Albuquerque. I moved to the university area. And I fell in with the coolest bunch of people. They were very politically aware, very politically active. They played ultimate frisbee. And I was just doing odd, odd jobs and supposedly interviewing, trying to find out what I wanted to do. But what I was really enjoying doing was playing ultimate with these guys and traveling around the West and playing ultimate poorly i was never very good at things like that but i was having a great time and that same year i answered an ad to teach skiing at angel fire hmm. i wasn't a great skier i had grown up skiing but i thought like my tryout to teach skiing at angel fire i thought it was the coolest thing cuz it was a 3 day tryout and that was the first time I skied two days in a row. Huh. And it was like, wow, this is great. But I, I skied terribly. And, but I was a good teacher. And I had a, a pretty strong work ethic, which in, the, in 1984 was kind of rare in the ski industry. And they hired me as a kids instructor. And I had a really great year. I was loving it. I was having a blast. I was coming over to Taos to ski on my days off. My dad came out to visit me. He had already climbed on Mount Rainier. He had already climbed on Mount McKinley. I'd seen his pictures of both of those, and you know i didn't I didn't imagine that I'd ever could could do those things but then all of a sudden I was working a seasonal job, and I was loving it. And my dad, he figured that out too. He was like, well, so I'll climb Mount McKinley with you, but you got to go to Mount Rainier first to, to learn climbing, to learn the technical side of, of mountaineering. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And that fit in, so I'd worked a season ski teaching that summer, I loaded up my car and and went up to Washington State, took the first program that the guide service on Rainier, Rainier Mountaineering, offered that season, a week-long mountaineering course. And the the guides on that trip were three, to me, fairly famous guys. Well, at the time, I didn't know who they were, but... But they became my mentors, and 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 were, you know, famous in my eyes. It was George Don who's climbed Mount Rainier more than any other human, hmm. over five hundred times now. Uh, Greg Wilson, Greg and George had just been to Everest the year before on the Tibet side, and in nineteen eighty four, that was still pretty rare. Nin- nineteen eighty five by then, that was still pretty rare to meet to meet Americans that had been to Tibet or that had been on Everest. And the third guide on that trip, whose rope I ended up up on as we were trying to go for the summit, was Ed Visters. He was kind of the rookie of the bunch, Uh, but Ed was was pretty darn solid and pretty impressive. And I, I just knew immediately, talking to those three guys, learning from those three guys, learning crevasse rescue, learning ice climbing... And I, I, you know, I wasn't a natural at it or anything. I could remember, you know, them putting these ice tools in my hands and me flailing or them lowering me in a crevasse and, and just being absolutely scared to death. But I was so sure after after years of not knowing, not having a clue what I wanted to do in life, I told those, those guys with certainty at the end of that week, hey... I'm going to be a guide. This is what I want to do. How do I do it? This was just ahead of the huge boom in the outdoor industry. Hmm. It was just kind of the start of it. Back then, they only hired about two guides a year. And they said, that well, we just hired them last week. So you can't work this summer. Wait tables at the Paradise Inn at the end of the road on Mount Rainier. You can climb every day. And that way you can be ready to be a guide next year, and that's exactly what I did and So I climbed Mount Rainier a couple of times that that summer. I came back, and I didn't I hadn't been planning on making this move, but by chance, I took a friend here to Towski Valley. Uh, he he wanted to apply for a job snowmaking, and I gave him a ride. And while I was doing that, I just got talking to somebody that worked in the ski school. And I said I, I taught kids at Angel Fire. And and the guy said, well, come talk to me for a little bit. And I talked to the guy. And pretty soon I was in an interview with Ernie Blake, the founder of Tao Ski Valley. And... And it was, it, for me, a very memorable, precious interview. I was, you know, it also had me very nervous. He asked some, some kind of tough questions that I wasn't expecting. Like what? Well, he asked some kind of piercing and, and weird questions. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, first of all, he kind of gave the impression and I and I realized well into the interview that he was faking me out. You know, he he gave the impression that he was kind of sleepy and kind of not paying attention. Huh. And you know that he was old. He had he had these contact lenses, and they were huge. And one of them came out during the interview, and he was like fumbling with it. And I only found it by the merest chance. He's holding this, and I'm thinking. <laughs> You know, he, he like kinda conned me into thinking he's this this old geezer and not really mm-hmm. all that sharp. The phone rang in the middle of the interview and Ernie picks it up and he gets talking to this guy and he starts spitting out stats on the chair lifts and engineering details and stuff like that and I'm like you know, I, I realize oh, you know, I mean, this guy's sharp as anything, but he asked me, like, some some weird questions. He asked me, just out of the blue, he goes, you have a brother? And I said, yeah, I have a a brother. What does he do? And I'm like, don't ask me what my brother does. I don't (laughs) know what my brother does. You know, my brother's a year older than me. He was doing odd jobs or something like that, and I, you know, his question just, like, Totally threw me off and I I I, uh, uh, I don't know uh, you know anyway at the end of it he was like ah, you're fine by me you have to pass a ski test and I went out and I you know I'm sure at the, the end of the ski test there were three of us in it including Jeff Muggleston oh yeah. Muggsy yeah nice yeah Muggsy was new at one time also <laughs> It's impossible for me to imagine <laughs> but uh but I skied terrible, I skied terrible, but I was a good teacher and they uh they put me in the kids ski school, and I taught kids skiing for five or six years and that that following year, I went back and I not only went to McKinley with my dad, I started working as a guide at at Mount Rainier for r m i and I, that was 30 years ago, and I've basically done that pattern since, and as that time went on, you know, at first it was Rainier and Denali, but that added, you know, that ended up, over the years, mountains kept being added in, In 91, I started going to the Himalaya and didn't stop, hmm. 95, I started going to Antarctica and didn't stop. Um, Yeah, I was always just adding a few more and trying to hang on to what I was still doing. It was important to me, and particularly important once I switched to ski patrolling in 91. This became a bigger and bigger part of my life. Even if I didn't give it as much time, it became a really important part of my life to, to be an EMT, to be a full ski patroller, to be somebody that they could count on, even if it wasn't for the entire season. Um, and so, yeah, I, I held on to that. And part, part of the reason I held on to that, because my, my guiding career was certainly taking off. And my ski area work was never going to, you know, I wasn't Scott Schmidt or, or something like that. <laughs> I wasn't a great skier, but I was a good working skier, and I had a good good head for risk and good head for, for the mountains, and good common sense. But but you know the the kind of work we do as a ski patroller. That's you're you're not gonna you're not gonna like. Strike it rich. You're not going to get famous doing that work. It's not going to lead to something bigger. But I realized pretty early on that it was... This was the place that... Uh, well, you can play all over the world, I found out. But this was the place that I wanted to live. And this was the community that I wanted to be in. Um, and I'm in a in a bunch of other working communities around the world but this is the living community that I'm in and I'm not that doesn't mean I'm a, I'm a great Taos resident you talk to anybody else who's lived in Taos for 30 years they know they know everybody they know you know uh, about all the art in Taos they know mm-hmm. you know they know their way around a whole lot better mm-hmm. than I do but I've been a very part time resident these 30 years. And uh, and the time that I've been here has been centered in, in Taos Ski Valley and has been centered on ski patrolling.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, not, I want this, I'm, I'm more interested actually in this question, not so much as it pertains specifically to Taos, but in terms of, you. so you started patrolling in 91. <clears throat> so you've seen some things. And your sense of how the sort of ski industry, by which I mean kind of, I guess, ski resort industry, how that has changed in ways that are surprising to you or what the fundamental difference you've sort of, granted you've witnessed it primarily at Taos, but things you've seen, um, changes you've seen since 91, um, for better or for worse,
1: um, what stands out, um, well, I think at Taos, uh, we're a little bit—I mean, I'm not the first person to say this—we're a little bit apart from the rest of the ski industry geographically, and and so sometimes we're behind what's going on elsewhere or trends, and I think that's. There's some good sides to that. There's some really good sides to that. In that, in that, you don't you don't try to keep up with with fashion here, where you're relieved of that burden. Yeah, no one cares. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other side of that is professionally, uh, we have to push ourselves to keep up with what's going on elsewhere that's that's really valuable to tap into for instance uh snow science and avalanches and you know what we can learn from the people that are that are full-on studying it in the wasatch or in uh, in wyoming um you know there's plenty that that we need to know uh, that that they're learning elsewhere and so yeah there there's there's pluses and minuses to being a part i mean the the huge thing which was my savior that that's happened while I've been ski patrolling, was that ski's changed mm-hmm. and if they hadn't uh i would I was just tortured you know when I started ski patrolling, we were on two ten g s s and that's yep. that's what you got. And you had to be able to make those work. And I I could not make those work. <laughs> Ski powder on skinny two tens, yeah. I, I recognize that some people could, but those people were gifted athletes and I was never going to be a gifted athlete. And so so if skis hadn't changed, one, I would have never enjoyed skiing. It was it was too much damn work. And two I'd have broke my neck if I had to keep trying to make those skinny skis work. So that that was what what the significant change that happened while I was doing it. Hmm.
0: So let me ask you on the, the other side, though. The other thing you said is you thought that, you know, there are, <clears throat> there are some things that we need to do at Taos in terms of keeping up on snow science and the rest. I think this is a super interesting question, right? We are and and to to overly simplify it, um, maybe there would be a way to to phrase it the kind of the human element in snow science versus moving to more automated efforts whether that is something like a a, a gas X system um. What do you think on that? I mean, you know, avalanche safety. I think it's a good thing that I think is a general trend. We are talking more about that as backcountry skiing is getting you know to be a more significant part of the ski industry. We're at least at at least paying lip service to some of this, but as you, as a patroller, talking about inbound patrol, and you've been around a, a minute, your thoughts on kind of the human element of Let's still get eyes. Let's, let's go there, put eyes on certain runs versus a move um, to automate some of this. Thoughts on that?
1: One, I would disqualify myself somewhat in, in that I work with some guys who are totally dialed into it, who are reading everything that comes out on the Internet about it, who have educated themselves on it, and I haven't. I I am not keeping up. It's not my interest to to delve into snow science any more than it is back when I was ski instructing to understand the perfect turn. I liked I liked the doing. And so to the extent that science can help me with what I'm doing when I go out on route and and have to cause avalanches and avoid getting caught in them i'm interested in the science to that point i'm casually interested in what's going on in the industry i I, you know if if somebody sticks my nose in it and says well you should be more than casually interested in this aspect of it because this is what you need to concentrate on you know for for the future okay fair enough but i but i would suggest that there there are people that have spent a lot more time looking at the 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 particular question that you're talking about and and to be honest it's not it's not my great interest i think you're always going to need uh, at a at a a a full on avalanche area like Towski valley you there will never be a substitute for getting eyes on yeah. and and getting out there and eventually making uh, the most personal and crucial decision of a human signing off on it and saying this is okay for the public to be on, this is not okay for the public to be on. So I think yes, we'll explore GasX they may they may go that way they may not i don't know but but it, it i don't see it as replacing the the patrol i see it as a tool that that may be useful uh but it but it i i don't see it as competition i don't see it as as uh, as replacing us and uh you know the work that that we have to do you know, yeah. it, you know, if it if it replaces a, a particular avalanche at Towski Valley, well, we still have the other two hundred kinds of avalanche that you get at Towski Valley. Yeah, you know that that the, the, the gasx catches the attention for those vast expanses where you might have gotten huge avalanches. One of our one of our major fears here is the little cut bank slope over our catwalk that could bury a class full of four-year-olds or five-year-olds, and that's never going to be a Gaz-X. Yep. That's always going to be a patroller being smart enough to remember that with this wind load and this much new snow, this is the little weird place that you got to look in before this mountain's safe
0: we got to talk about Everest. Um, but you don't have
1: to say it like that. I love Everest. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but see, I, I, I don't. And so I, you're here but to... But I would never
0: try to convince you but I to go <laughs> to Everest. No, but I, I want to be convinced.
1: No. Because I'm missing. I go, I'm, I'm missing... not in that business.
0: <clears throat> no, well. I... Because
1: that that's perilously. <laughs> no. No, no that's, that's peril, perilously close to trying to convince you to go to Everest, I'm and not... I don't want you to okay. go, go to We're Everest. Okay. I don't want you to go to Everest. We're there.
0: You and I are on the same page. Cheers. <laughs> um First of all, we're gonna get into Everest by one. I, I and I want honest. You gotta be honest the first time in this conversation. The first time in this conversation. J. Bob knows me. I'm not, <laughs> yeah, I'm not restricted
1: by honesty. I want an
0: honest review of the Everest movie.
1: Well, I would I would give you a qualified honest. I, no. I know some of the people that made it. I yeah. I respect those people. Um. Uh, i I don't want to say in anything in any way insulting, but uh, but I was actually kind of relieved in watching it that it wasn't more realistic. I thought it was very good. I thought it was entertaining, but i I found myself kind of curiously relieved that they didn't hit the ball out of the park with it that it that it wasn't full on real because I don't think I could have taken it hmm. I knew all those people that were involved in those accidents and that died in 1996 I wouldn't say that I was best friends with any of them but I had been on expeditions with some of those folks I I was certainly ran into those same guides on all the, the trips that I was doing back then um if the movie was better, I think I'd have had a harder time watching it. But uh but from my standpoint, they were caricatures of themselves. And and the critics said the same that the that that the Rob Hall and Scott Fisher characters didn't come off as as real characters. And I was thankful for that in in watching it, you know, because because again, it's yeah, that's kind of hard stuff. And I and I was relieved in watching it that there were little flaws that maybe somebody else wouldn't pick up that when Rob Hall is dying at 28,800 feet out there in this vicious storm that there was snow melting on his arm in the movie and... And I was looking at it, and I was distracted from yeah. what was going on by saying, "Wow, that's way too warm." The the hell of that situation would be how how brutally cold it was, and you know, no amount of shivering by the actor or frost on the face could could take my attention off of. Wait, the snow's melting on his arm. That's not cold enough. That's not awful enough. Usually you think of Hollywood exaggerating mm-hmm. that agony and I got kind of let off the hook there. I was like, oh, that's actually not as bad as it is when you're dying of cold, when you're in that that horrible situation. And and so yeah, I got, you know, I I I was somewhat relieved of that. The other side of me says, "Wow, if you're going to spend 60 million dollars if you're gonna go big, ah, too bad they missed it by that much, you know. But I think it's cool that they took a shot at it. You know, I, I kept, I kept people kept asking me about the movie. And as in, oh, weren't you in it? Or isn't that about you? Or weren't you there? And it's kind of like, well, no, that's kind of that movie's actually a story of a train wreck, and I wasn't on Everest that year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's you know, and I'm kind of glad. I mean, that was uh that was an awful situation to be in, and I'm not so sorry that I that I wasn't part of that your first your first trip to everest was
0: as a guide nineteen
1: ninety one the north side the tibet side uh, to go back a little bit the it started getting semi normal to climb the south side by nineteen ninety one it wasn't quite normal yet to climb the north side and the first commercial trips had begun already and were having some success on the south side in 1991 we were still trying to guide the north side but it was a different kind of guiding uh for instance on the the trip I went on in 91 we had like 10 mountain climbing guides and there were four guys who found the money for the trip Uh, basically wealthy guys who didn't didn't use their own money but found you know we found foundations and sold t-shirts which is kind of silly now you know when you think of the cost of those (laughs) these trips it's like really we were still selling (laughs) t-shirts but but we didn't have a uh, a straight guide client relationship on that trip within a couple of years that had become formalized on the north side also um, it was commercial trips. It was the beginning of commercial trips, and which was a very fortunate thing for me. My career as a mountain guide, I came along and, and had the suitable experience just at the start of commercial guiding on the 8,000-meter peaks of the Himalaya. And so you know that meant I could have a career there uh had i been 10 years earlier you know my i might have my concentration might have been on hard climbs in the himalaya but it wouldn't necessarily have been on on guiding in the himalaya had I been 10 years later i'd have been fighting pretty hard to get into an already kind of choked field and yeah i i say that without apology that that I came along at the right time to take advantage to be to be to become a career Everest guide um yeah I, I to me that was that was a good thing in this last couple of years the Everest industry uh has has taken a hit for obvious reasons uh, the major loss of life in the last couple of years the perception among so many people that it's unfair uh that sherpas don't make as much as westerners that you know that they take the the brunt of the the hazard uh, you know for a million reasons that the you know i've Gotten tons of play, and and it's become everybody's perception that we're just that we're single-handedly destroying the planet. We're making a mess. We're polluting. We're we're all the evils. But but I, no, I've been in in it a little longer than that. I I know. Uh, I know a little bit more about guiding Everest. To realize that, well, I'm I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that there that there that nobody exploits uh, chirpas, that nobody exploits uh, poorly paid Nepalese, but but to sum sum the industry up by that is is a total mistake and misses uh, how many. Sherpas, we've given, and Nepalis, we've given uh, an honorable career to um, and opportunities to make far more money than, than they could have made in any other way in Nepal, um, and that I've benefited by it as well. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sit here and tell you that nobody pollutes on Everest, pollution is a problem on Everest. Pollution is also a problem on the Rio Grande. It's a problem on the the Colorado River. It's a problem on Denali. It's a problem on Mount Rainier. It's a problem on Wheeler Peak. You know, we don't get a free ride from that. But if you define what we're doing on Everest by the fact that that some people leave a mass, you're you're missing the point you know the the people that 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 say well this this is not what Ed Hillary and Tenzing Norgay did in nineteen fifty three you guys aren't aren't true to what what they were doing, the pioneers were doing. I'd point out that driving a car in two thousand sixteen is not like driving a car in nineteen fifty three either. The world has changed Some of the places that you hold sacred, that you don't think should be touched by man, well, that's your opinion. You're entitled to that opinion. But if I similarly decided that, to me, Central Park in Manhattan is sacred ground, and I can't believe you guys are walking on that sacred ground every day, well, that's a little bit arbitrary. You know, I have a little bit more room for the argument that it's a sacred mountain to Nepalese and Tibetans, and and just the way I have respect now for the Taos Pueblo Indians, saying they don't want people climbing Taos Mountain, well. There was a time in my life when I would have said, well, how can somebody own such a beautiful mountain? Of course I've got to be able to climb that mountain. And now I don't feel that way. I feel like, well, if they feel strongly about that, there's got to be a little bit of room in this world for for mountains that, that don't get climbed. Uh, balanced against... Nepalis and Tibetans who view Everest as sacred it's sacred to those of us who are climbers it's significant to those of us to whom it has an attraction the fact that it doesn't attract you I don't have a problem with that there's not enough room in these mountains for everybody to be drawn to them there's not enough room now for the people that are drawn to Everest and that's that's become a reality in the last couple of years and that's become a, a difficult reality um, you know just a couple of years ago I would have said no it doesn't need regulation it doesn't need you know we can we can figure it out ourselves and yeah I don't feel that anymore it it, it surely does need some regulation. The trouble is there's nobody in a good position to regulate it. Nobody. Well, you're looking at either the government of China or the government of Nepal, both of which haven't proved themselves uh, great at governing... A bunch of other things, a bunch of other aspects of, of normal life. Why would you look to them to figure out mountaineering? You know, and I don't. I don't look to the U.S. government to figure out mountaineering. You know, I'm I'm kind of shocked at how many people do. You know, up on Denali, where I where I have worked every year for the last thirty years, people are sure that the that the National Park Service. Is the authority on on climbing Denali, and it's like, really? you know they have some very talented folks and experienced folks, but oh okay, well, sure, well let's defer to let's defer to the government if they if they say this is how mountains should be climbed, surely that's how they should be climbed. well doing the same thing in in Nepal and Tibet. Wow, you're going to get some you're going to get some interesting ideas.
0: Your intention is to go back to Everest this summer?
1: No, I decided uh, a week 10 days ago I'm huh. not going to go to Everest. I would I would normally be leaving in about 2 weeks to go to Everest and I'm I'm not going this year. Hmm. So I'm going to finish the ski season for the first time in 20 years.
0: What are you doing instead? You already know. After the ski season?
1: Well, I I think I went through a phase where Mm -hmm. I I thought in kind of grandiose terms where, wow, if I'm not going on a two and a half month gut-wrenching expedition to Everest for the first time in all these years, wow, all the things I could do. I could climb Makalu, I could climb Mm -hmm. Kanchanjunga, I could go to Alaska and climb Foraker and Hunter and the Cassine Ridge and everything. Uh, I don't think I'm going to do all that. I'm also 54 years old. I'm not not going to Everest this year because of my age. Uh, or because of some feeling that I'm... You know, tiring of the mountains. Uh, but uh, But in the end, I... I decided No, I don't I don't have to I don't have to prove something in place of going to Everest. You know, and I guess I guess that that was what kinda made it tough in the end. I you know, it turned out I didn't have work on Everest this year. I kinda upped my standards for going there, upped my price, upped my the situation that I would go there in, and then when it turned out that nobody took me up on that, I had to think back and go, okay, yeah, well, I set that bar that way for a reason because the last few years have been so tough there. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, will I go there anyway just to climb it for the fun of it? And I thought, I thought in the end, that's perilously close to going there just for my ego. And I, you know, I, I've i gone there for money. <laughs> you know, it's been a big part of making my living for years, decades. Uh, I've gone there for lots of reasons. I don't know that I should purely go there for fear of being left out. And by that same logic, I don't need know that I need to replace it and try and do it one better or try and show show the world that I got something by by doing some trophy climb. I don't know that I that I that I need to be I don't know that I should be trying to prove something with that time that's been freed up and know what I what I guess I'm coming around to is I'm looking forward to actually finishing the ski season I'm taking pleasure in going to work every day and trying to help people that don't know that i'm that I have a climbing background or reputation that only are only are wondering whether I can help them with their knee injury or help them get out of this awkward little spot they got themselves into. I'm enjoying that and yeah maybe a little time I don't know plant some flowers or something and watch them come up in April. I'm still going off and I'm still going to guide on Mount Rainier and I'm still going to guide on Denali and I'm still going to go to Kilimanjaro and I'm still going to go to Antarctica and I may (laughs) go to Everest this next year but to be honest this year I'm going to try pretty hard to deal with not going there and being okay with it you know that uh That if I had to go to Everest for, let's see, I've been there now 21 times, 22 times, been there 21 times. Um, I guess that was part of it too. If I couldn't not go this year then what was going to stop me from going through the same trouble next year? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Better be able to deal with it. Get you down the river here. Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> yeah? There are be open rivers. to that.
0: There are rivers to run. <laughs> I want to ask one last question for now. <clears throat> and I would love to do this again. Because I feel like there is so much more stuff to talk about. But for now and you know we want to we want to get you to the ping pong tournament because these things matter right we've sure we've just made clear these things well, matter there's also frito pies there's frito pies <laughs> ping pong and frito pies like i think i, might... I
1: was bringing the whiskey so
0: oh <clears throat> if there's ping pong and frito pies i might crash this party but <laughs> so let's let's end on this You have talked about the sacred nature of Everest. I think we can probably generalize that out to many mountains, right? You have also made clear talking about, for you personally, and about some of the uh, clients who might be interested in coming to Everest and on these uh, expeditions in general. There's the notion of proving yourself. Can Can I do this? Can I pull this off? um i'm i'm guess i'm interested in with the clients that you the many 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 clients that you have guided over the year do they tend to come in with this notion of i need to test myself do they do just as many come in with this notion of i want this experience of whether they phrase it this way of the sacred Um,
1: and then do these things flip-flop, change? Sure. I mean, there's the the full range. There's the stereotypical people that you would expect and that you would be worried about that that are doing this for something more to pin on the wall, some accomplishment that others would recognize, some boost to the resume. But for every one of those... There's, there's also people, you know, and it's easy as a guide or as a mountain professional, it's easy to, it's like shooting fish in a barrel to find the flaws in those people and to look down on them. But then while you're doing that, I get clients every now and then that have totally excelled in what they do, be it brain surgery, be it buying and selling companies, be it philanthropical endeavors. And then you end up a little bit humbled by the way they do well in your world also. And they climb and they're not Bragging about it. They're not posting about it. It's not to make, not to sell themselves as the greatest climber in the world. They just always wanted to see the world from 8,000 meters, or Everest means as much to them as it means to me, or they thought climbing Vincent would be the coolest way to see Antarctica. And so. So sure, there there are the easy people to criticize, um, but then but then there are the people that humble you who have. I mean, for me, to be good in the ski industry, and the guiding industry, it's had to be for me a full time endeavor. I haven't had a family, never gone that way. I've concentrated on mountains it's been all I could do and then occasionally you meet people who have been able to do it all who have been able to run companies be a significant part of a perfect family and can come out on their holiday and climb and ski and Do every, you know, I mean, you know, those of us who live at climbing and skiing know how hard it is for somebody to come out for a week or two weeks or a month, Hmm. a year. Well, some people manage that. Some people, some people are able to do it all. Hmm. And, yeah, if you're not humbled by that, well, then it's it's time to open your eyes a little bit more hmm. Hmm. i'm I'm doing what i what i like to do but every now and then i'm i meet somebody who's done so much more not not just in climbing or skiing but in everything
0: hmm. very good <clears throat> well this has been a true pleasure and an honor uh Wonderful talking with you. Great to have this conversation with one of my favorites, the strikingly handsome Justin Bob, which is how we always describe him on the podcast. And the sound guy.
1: Oh, I see him in this light. Trying Doesn't to look, this to this look this angle. Right. Um, <laughs>
0: this light's good for him. Um, Dave, this has been really fun um, and um, and really great. And we um, <clears throat> we certainly feel proud and honored to have you around these parts. Um it's fun to give you an opportunity to talk a bit about some of the things you're doing. I feel slightly worse about the fact that I think it was two weekends ago that we found a camera on Reforma. We then took a bunch of pictures of ourselves on Reforma. And then you actually, we were like, hey, Dave, would, Uh-oh. can we get this? Camera to oh, this Lost is the worry
1: because I didn't look at any of the pictures on that. I turned it into Lost in and <laughs> Found. Yeah. Did you?
0: No, no. It's it's oh, okay. oh, it's that not. Yeah, strange. no. It's it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty. <laughs> it's pretty PG. But um, it. I think for everyone. I think for everyone who knows you, um, and uh, has has seen your passion for Taos and your your passion for the work here maybe that's about as good of a snapshot um as i could we could end this with that um that you are the person who has uh, summited everest is it 15 times mm-hmm. um and you were the same person who we were handing off a camera we found on reforma to return down to the lost and found um I, there is a remarkable uh Lesson here about achievement and humility
1: yeah, and i I hear that from people and i'm I'm aware in and, and, and it worries me a little bit in this in this weird little way that 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 people say, you know, wow, you could be doing so much more with that with with this resume you could you could you know the pathway is there to, you know, motivational speaker or whatever. Oh, no, you got to do that. And it's like, well, no, you don't have to do that. I, me personally, I have to do this. I have to be that guy that you could hand that camera off today and that I could run it down to Lost and Found instead of hiking the ridge. You know, that... That's that's where I need to be. Because I'm in this for the, the long run. I'm not in and you maybe get a choice at some point. You get to decide why you're in this and, and what it is you're trying to get out of it and where you're going with it. And yeah, I meet a lot of people that are going somewhere with it. And that's great. That's wonderful. It's really something to see where they go with it. I'm going here with it. I like where I'm at with it. I like guiding Rainier and Denali and Everest and Kilimanjaro even. I like ski patrolling at Tau Ski Valley and being out there and like putting ropes around tree branches with birds chirping around me and and snow all around me and skiers in need of help. That's where I'm going with it. I don't want to be a congressman someday. I don't want to be a senator someday. I don't want to be... spending my life in domestic airports and sterile hotel rooms and talking to crowds of people I don't know. That's all great, but I get up pretty good doing what I'm doing. So... I'm clear on that. Well,
0: thanks. Awesome, this Dave. has been great. Are you? Uh, are you on the mountain tomorrow? I am. Okay, we'll see you out there. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Cool.
1: See <laughs> you right. guys. Take care. Turn off that damn recorder. Oh yeah. Good time.
0: That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Dave Hahn for the conversation. To our strikingly handsome though possibly illiterate audio engineer Justin Bob and to New Belgium Brewing Company for sponsoring this podcast. Go to newbelgium.com to check out all of their beers. Full disclosure, I said at the intro that J-Bob and I were drinking Fat Tire, but we finished that, so now he and I are both back on to Citradelic. So thanks for making this evening even better, New Belgium. Till next week, be sure to check out what we're up to online at blisterreview.com, And if you haven't already, we'd appreciate it if you went and subscribed to the Blister Podcast in iTunes. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Dave Hahn for the conversation, to our strikingly handsome, though possibly illiterate, audio engineer, Justin Bob, and to... (laughs) (laughs)
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>